Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to episode number 73 of Thyroid Nation Radio Live Talk Show and Podcast. I'm Dana Bowman, founder of ThyroidNation.com. And I'm Tiffany Milanich of GratefulGarden.biz. And as you can probably tell, I'm getting over a little cold today, so please bear with me. Uh, we are Kermit. talking with... Yeah, right. <laughs> Kermit. We are talking with Dr. Peter Osborne, the gluten-free warrior and author of No Grain, No Pain, about gluten. Mm. Craziness, right? I just I'm yep. excited for this show. He he just needs to he needs to get me. He's got to get me. I know. <laughs> yep. So if you have missed any of the Thyroid Nation Radio podcasts, you can very easily download and listen to them. Of course, at your leisure on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Acast. You had a Google Play in there. Cool. I did. Yay! <laughs> you did it. You're you're tossing me up this morning. You're on, man. <laughs> Okay, Peter Osborne is the clinical director of Origins Healthcare in Sugarland, Te- Sugarland, Texas, which I have been to. He is a doctor of pastoral science, board certified in chiropractic medicine, and a diplomat of the American Clinical Board of Nutrition. Wait, what did I just say? Diplomat. Diplomat. <laughs> Thank you. Uh-huh. Yep, sometimes okay, my brain ends up reading and cold medicine. And uh, in practice since 2001, Dr. Osborne's clinical focus is the holistic natural treatment of chronic degenerative diseases with a primary focus on gluten sensitivity and food allergies, right? Which is what we're going to be talking about. Tiff, you got to put your ears on today. He founded Gluten-Free Society in 2010 to help educate patients and physicians on the far-reaching effects of gluten sensitivity, he is the author of Glutenology, a series of digital videos and ebooks designed to help educate the world about gluten, and again, the author of No Grain, No Pain. We got to get it. I just saw it; otherwise, I would have already gotten it. I would have already gotten it. <laughs> and it looks like he is already with us. So let's get this thyroid nation thriving. He needs to get you and I thriving. Good morning, Dr. Osborne. How are you this morning? I'm doing fantastic. How are you guys doing? Or I should say gals. Yeah, we're good. We're doing good. We're um I'm uh, fighting a little cold over here and and you can probably hear it in my nose and my throat. But other than that, I'm pretty happy and we're glad to have you on. We we really, you know, we're probably gonna have these reverse um uh, flower-filled moments because, you know, the whole gluten topic, it's very, very difficult for people to let go of gluten, and there's gluten everywhere. So <laughs> autoimmune disease patients need to, and uh, we want you to we want you to turn it on and tell us why. We want you to get us today. Your job is to get yeah, us. Yeah. It's to get you, okay. Hook, line, <laughs> and sinker. Absolutely. So, so well, let's Hook, just start with, with first, I, I, I want you to get over your cold fast, so I want to give you a, a quick tip on that if you don't mind. 
Yes. Because we are in cold and flu season coming. Everybody's going back to school. Yes, we are. And the earth is tilted on its axis. We're making less vitamin D. One of the most profound immune building and supporting supplements that you can use to prevent a cold or a flu is high doses of vitamin D. Now, I will preface that by saying if you have a kidney disorder, then don't do this. Um, But if you do not have a kidney disorder or dysfunction, it's perfectly safe and perfectly fine. But taking 150,000, that's 150,000 international units of vitamin D for three days will knock out anything that goes up against you. Really? I'm doing it. That's going to the store. Now, it's any, one of the any easiest tricks. Pardon? Dr. Osborne, any cofactors with that, magnesium or anything, or just vitamin D? Well, vitamin D is a simple, easy way to do it. If you want to, you can do other things. Probably the most effective combination of things is, is a mixture of vitamin D, five grams of vitamin C. Also extremely effective. And zinc. 50 to 100 milligrams. So those, if we're just saying, okay, the most effective, hands down, most scientifically studied and most proven methods, clinically as well as research-based, those three things are more effective than anything else. I love that. That's an awesome, awesome tip. We could just stop right now, and I would be thrilled. (laughs) That's right. I honestly have to tell you, Dr. Osborne, I listened to your talk with uh, on essential oils uh, revolution too with uh, Dr. Z, and I really enjoyed your talk. I was so excited. I listened to it yesterday on uh, I was on the road on the way to work, and and I was just pumped to talk to you. Wrote down a bunch of notes. I mean, you just you hit so many things. So so just excited to ha- have you on this morning. It was a great uh, great talk. Well, I appreciate I appreciate that, and I love I love Eric. He's a great guy doing wonderful things in in the health world too. Very much so. That that essential oils revolution too. I was really amazed. Of course, being in essential oils for for a living, I was really amazed at how much incorporation of really health topics were in there. More so, you know, with with almost tidbits of essential oils, but it was it was really a um, a broad scale health. Uh, summit. I felt it was it was great. I enjoyed it. <clears throat> so right. we want to dive into autoimmunity. So um, I'll, I can let you guys lead the conversation, or I can just dive into it in in a, in a particular element. One of the things that we I want your listeners to absolutely understand is when we talk about autoimmune disease in science, like all the research that's ever been done on autoimmunity, there are literally only a handful of known causes or triggers for autoimmunity. The most well-studied of them all is gluten. As a matter of fact, we've got more research on gluten-induced autoimmunity than we have on anything else. So if a person is struggling with any form of autoimmunity, gluten is actually the thing that should be ruled out first and foremost. Now, a lot of people... Like you said earlier, they don't, they don't want to give up that gluten. They, they, they're kind of holding on to it with, with just a vice-like grip because it's in everything and it's what they love and they're maybe even addicted to some of the properties of, uh, of grain-based proteins. But if we're going to get tested properly for it, and this is a big, big important note, do not get tested for celiac disease, okay? As you, as you two probably already know, autoimmune Hashimoto's, 
right? A lot of women develop Hashimoto's as part of the gluten complex, and they never develop celiac disease. Unfortunately, most doctors, when they think about testing for gluten, they don't test for gluten. They test for celiac disease. So if we think about it as this umbrella, gluten sensitivity isn't a disease at all. It's actually genetic. You either have the genes that when you re- when you come into contact with gluten, your body looks at it as an enemy, or you don't have the genes. And so if you do and you eat gluten, then the side effect of that is going to be chronic inflammation that opens the gateway to autoimmune disease. And so if I'm testing you for celiac disease... I'm only testing one kind of autoimmune disease, and if you don't have celiac disease but you have Hashimoto's and the test comes back negative, it doesn't mean you're not gluten sensitive. It just means you don't have the celiac damage associated with gluten sensitivity. Very important to note that. So the only way you can really test for gluten sensitivity at its core is genetics, and there are a couple different genes and, and variants on these genes that we look at. Um, they're called HLA-DQ variants, and there are a handful of patterns that we see with people who, if they have them, they are going to react to gluten. In essence, it's, it's important. Gluten sensitivity is not a disease. It's a state of genetics. So it's not even really a diagnosis. You either have these genes or you don't. It's kind of like you're either pregnant or you're not, right? You're not, there's no in-between. You either are sensitive to the gluten, and when you eat it, your body will recognize it as an enemy, or you won't. And so genetic testing is the most accurate way to get that answer. Is there a specific specific test? It's it's um, yes. So it's called HLA DQ testing. Now a lot of companies will do HLA DQ testing. Um, many of your listeners who who understand or know about celiac disease might have heard of of, of this HLA DQ two or HLA DQ eight gene pattern. These these numbers, these DQ2s and DQ8s, are present in about 99% of all people with celiac disease. Hmm. But, but, and so some labs, and I think 23andMe even does, partially does this, where they look to see whether or not you have a 2 or an 8. But they don't look to see whether or not you have some of these other genetic patterns. So that type of testing, although it can be done, isn't, isn't specific enough and isn't informational enough to give you that answer. Uh, it's such so a big project. So you, sorry, you have what's to your do favorite something. lab and, and panel? Well, I, I actually have my own lab. I have my own lab to do it because nobody was doing it right. There was one lab out in Dallas that was testing half the genome. So they were testing oh, wow. what's called the HLA-DQ beta-1 gene. And you can be negative on the beta-1 gene but positive on the alpha-1 gene. And so if you get a fall, if you get a negative on beta-1 and that's all you were testing, you would think, oh, I'm not gluten-sensitive. I don't need to worry about it. So we want to test both genes. It's very important to test both genes. So we actually we actually um, contracted with a major lab to actually create this panel for us so that we, we do something oh, called cool. PCR, polymerase chain reaction, which is 99.9 infinity percent accurate as it relates to DNA testing. It's not the same thing as SNP testing. SNP testing is very different. PCR is... is um, going to tell us exactly what genetic alleles a person has, which is very important in determining whether or not they have gluten-sensitive genetic alleles. And if you don't test for the alleles themselves, you don't, you'll never have the answer. Okay, let's just sit for a minute. Flowerfield moment. I know. I need to ingest all of that information. We have our Flowerfield (laughs) moments on the show, uh, Dr. Osborne, and uh, that was one of them, okay, because we just, sometimes you just got to, like, hear what the person says and let it absorb, and that was kind of a lot, and 
basically, I have a, a question that relates to obviously gluten. So, because Tiffany is very gluten sensitive, um, I don't know whether she has the genetic predisposition or not, but when she eats gluten, she can tell automatically. Not not like all her face not all stuff. types of gluten, which is why not I haven't types. given it up. I'm I'm really stubborn on this subject, but um, <laughs> very. But her face is well and, and all that kind of stuff, right? And I don't have... Not, not with gluten. Any. Not with gluten. Gluten is all about the brain. See, I have no digestive problems. And, and, and that, this question was coming at you, Dr. Osborne. So I have okay. a lot of Sorry, brain... Sorry, you take over then. Go ahead. <laughs> a lot of brain issues. I know Dana was like, we're going to ask him. So I have a lot of brain issues. I have antibodies that are currently attacking my eyes. That's a fairly new thing. But anyways, long story short, been tested for celiac. None of my doctors will pay attention to the gluten topic, which is why I, I honestly have to say that's probably yeah, probably a little bit in there, and then I can eat certain gluten and be just fine. Certain breads I can eat and be just fine, and then other ones will, will knock me out. So tell me why conventional mainstream medicine refuses to acknowledge this topic. And and. Listen to Tom O'Brien. We've interviewed him. He's a wonderful man, so informed. It was awesome. And then he went on the, the doctors on TV, and they said, yeah, well, there's not much study on that, and they shut him right down. It was so frustrating. Please tell me why they're being so ignorant on this topic. There's a couple of different reasons. I mean, I can't speak for all doctors, right, because that, that would be a gross overgeneralization. I'm, I'm certain there are some doctors that aren't uh, misinformed. Agreed. Agreed. But I apologize. On a large, so majority. No, no, that's okay. Right. On a large scale, though, the first reason why is because doctors don't train in nutrition, and gluten sensitivity is a nutritional disease, hands down. Um, gluten is a, is a family of proteins found within the seeds of grass, which are grains, period. That's what it is. And if you don't study nutrition, how can you understand nutritional disease very well? And the average medical doctor going through school gets less than seven hours of nutrition. Most people have had that just from one of these summits, Right. They get more nutritional information than most of their men. But, but the thing is, you go to a doctor and what do you expect? You expect that the doctor is highly educated and trained. And you make the assumption as a patient that he's trained in nutrition because he knows about health, right? That's a false consumer assumption. So people go in under the assumption that the doctor's trained, but the doctor's not. And the doctor won't admit that he's not trained in that area. The doctor's trained in, in diagnosing disease and then recommending drugs or surgery to combat that disease, not to cure it, not to fix it, not to make it go away, but to treat it. And it's very important to understand that when we're treating disease, what we're doing is we're setting up a lifelong relationship with a patient that never leads to resolution of the condition. It only leads to, in my opinion, it leads to a customer for life, right? Right. That management through pharmaceuticals, right, right. Yeah, yeah, and it doesn't serve the patient. It, It really doesn't even serve the doctor because the the model itself has failed. The medical model has failed. We're, we spend more money per person than any country in the world on healthcare, on pharmaceuticals, yet our diseases haven't reduced. We don't have less heart disease, less cancer, less diabetes, less autoimmune disease. These, all of these things have increased exponentially over the last 30 years, but we're throwing more money at it. And what we're throwing money at is drug research. So we're throwing and trying to develop and trying to 
uh, create more drugs and drug research, but drugs aren't the solution. That's why the diseases aren't less. That's why we don't have less of them. We have more of them because another study that recently just came out was published in BMJ, British Medical Journal, found that drugs were the third leading cause of death. So if you've got cancer and heart diseases, number one and number two, and then the, the drugs to treat them is the third leading cause of death, is that a failed model? In my opinion, right. it's an extremely failed model. So Holy when moly. do we stand up as a consumer and say, I'm done with this model, I'm tired of it, it doesn't make sense. Going on an artificial chemical for the rest of my life to treat my disease doesn't solve why I have the disease. And this is particularly true of autoimmune disease because autoimmune disease is a lifestyle disease, meaning that it is caused as a result of lifestyle choices. Now, some of those choices are obvious. Uh, we all have a common, kind of a common background or commonality on the, in the sense that we know Coke is bad for us. We know that ice cream and candy, right, we know certain things are absolutely bad for us. There's, that's not a mystery, right? Those are what I call common sense nutritional facts. However, a lot of people aren't aware that grain in and of itself and the glutens found within grain is a major trigger of autoimmune disease, especially if you have those gene patterns. There are other things that are not commonly known. It's not just the gluten, okay? A lot of people get focused on gluten, and we've got this kind of demonized component right. where everybody's attacking gluten. And I, you know, I, being in the stance and in the area that I'm in and not my expertise, I'm, I don't like to demonize gluten. I'm very objective and scientific, and I'm open to new research, and I'm open to new fields of thought and study because it's not just gluten. There are pesticides like glyphosate and atrazine that grains have in high quantities. There are molds and mycotoxins within grains that some people react to. There are heavy metals in certain grains. Rice is full of cadmium and arsenic. Um, and so some people react to those things in a very negative way. The, most grains are very highly glycemic, and when you eat over an overabundance of them, you generate diabetes and blood sugar problems, and you feel horrible all the time. And it has nothing to do with a food allergy. It has to do with the nature of the food itself. So, so there's all these different components to grain, and this is why I want to be very clear on, on the proper way to diagnose gluten sensitivity is that if you are truly gluten sensitive from a genetic perspective, there's a zero tolerance policy for it. If you're really reacting to the pesticides, some grains are going to be heavier in pesticide than other. If you're really reacting to the metals or the molds or the mycotoxins, um, then that's going to vary from grain to grain. Does that make sense? So a yes. lot of people will go grain-free, and they'll, and they'll sit back and say, I feel better, or they'll go gluten-free in the traditional sense, which is wheat, barley, rye, and sometimes oats-free, but they won't go corn-free or rice-free. They'll keep eating other grains. Uh, that's the difference between traditional gluten-free and true gluten-free. True gluten-free means no grain at all. Traditional gluten-free means that you're free of wheat, barley, rye. Um, and so some people will, will feel better but not get better. In other words, they'll have persistent problems, like you mentioned that you had autoimmune antibodies in your eyes, probably Sjogren's. To tell me if I'm wrong, but did they diagnose you with Sjogren's? Uh, no, they're they're actually in the process of ruling several things out. But uh, one of the big things is uh, ocular myasthenia gravis. Oh, okay, myasthenia gravis, which is a very well established and studied to be linked to pesticide exposure. So really, you know, yeah, absolutely. Not going to hear so that in there. <laughs> if you're not eating organic, you're not getting rid of that. Which I do okay. probably, I would probably say 75% of the time, but the other not 25% enough. with yeah. four kids, it's not enough. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, I am definitely the perfect picture of the bucket is full. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> so the bucket is full. 
But, I mean, I've been tested for heavy metals. I've, I mean, just, you know, multiple things have been ruled out. This is a, a long-term, and, you know, I've, I've had kidney failure, liver failure since childhood a couple of times. So this is, I, I was born, I was born genetically weak. I'm genetically weak. No, none of us are born. So let's dispel no, that myth. No. None of us are born genetically weak. We are actually born. Our genes are the biggest gift that we have. And the reason why is we have ancestors that have survived hundreds of thousands of years, and so we've inherited the best of the best of the best. We do not have weak genes. We're we just have tipping the scale higher than ever, right? Well, what we we're... have is we have wrong environments. We don't have bad genes. We've got, you know, we've got a, you know, have you ever heard the term phenotypic expression? Yeah. No. So it's I a phenotypic have. expression. <laughs> simply put, means it's your genes plus your environment. And if you if your genes don't match your environment then you'll get sick. A perfect example of this is, okay, obvious. Try to go underwater and breathe, okay? Multiple choice question. If you go underwater and try to breathe, you'll either A, drown and choke, B, grow gills and survive just fine, uh, or, or C, none of the above, right? I mean, the answer is obviously you're going to drown and choke. It's because you're putting your genes in an environment that's not conducive to their survival, but it's so not conducive that it, the effects are noticeable immediately, Whereas when we talk about food and heavy metals and, and allergens and environmental toxins, this is slow poison. It's not, okay, I'm putting myself in such a poisonous environment that I'm going to die tomorrow. It's I'm putting myself in a poisonous environment consistently enough that my body's adaptations become the disease. So your body's warnings is a lot of people, they want to name the disease. They, they're so busy trying to get a name for their disease right. Right. so that they can have some kind of clarity about what to do about it, which is generally a medicine that they're not focusing on the fact that the disease itself is the environmental adaptation. So the disease is your, is your body warning you that you're doing something in your environment that isn't correct. And if you pay attention to that and you, and you look for the correction in that, then you don't, have, you don't need a name for the disease because the disease can go away if you figure out what the underlying origin of it is. Okay, flower-filled moment. Let's just sit with that again. This is fantastic. That was that was really no one has said that on the show, so thank you. I was just gonna say no one has ever said that. And I, I loved the way that you explained the history of grain. That for some reason to me was just like the ultimate red flag, how you explained the casing and and uh, just the history of grain was just fascinating to me. I mean we, we, we talk to so many people but no one really ever talks about that. That was that was well, really and an, an if, awesome. if my husband were listening, which he's in the other room, but if my husband were uh-huh. listening, he would say, "Well, our ancestors ate rice and beans and blah blah blah, and they're just fine." So, <laughs> right? And so <laughs> he, he says that every single time I have someone with gluten that our grains going to be on the show, and I'm like, "You just need to listen to my shows, please." He can only hear me, yeah. right? So. Okay, well, so our go ahead. that's the Jump whole in. thing, yeah, is that our ancestors aren't just fine and weren't just fine. They were sick, too, uh, right. and had problems as well. That's, that's part of the history. There's the old, you know, we've all heard the cliche, those that don't know their history are doomed to repeat it, which is why I love history, because especially nutritional history and medical history, because there's so much information that people are just not aware of. And, and if you study the history of medicine and you study the history of nutrition, um, there's a lot that can be gleaned from that and learned. We make a lot of assumptions. I mean, probably rice is one of the biggest assumptions that we make. Oh, Asians are so healthy, um, and they all eat rice. 
but they have they have one of the largest diabetic rates in the world. Um, they have a lot of health, chronic health issues, primarily blood sugar-based issues, and one of the reasons why is the rice exposure, um, the chronic rice as a staple food in the diet. That's crazy, and you had talked about uh, Dr. Kellogg, which literally blew my mind. I mean, the whole, you know, cereal. My father is such a cereal person. It drives me crazy. But uh, you had talked about, uh, you know, Kellogg being an MD. I didn't know that. You know, he was a doctor. But, um, yeah, it was just a, it was a fascinating history. So let's, let's jump in to gluten and the thyroid. Let, for, for everybody, let's talk about, you know, thyroid normal, thyroid biochemistry, and gluten in the thyroid and how that's very specific to that particular gland. So there's two, there's two main causes of, of low thyroid, and, I, and, I, and this is not all of the causes. This is just two of the big ones, right? One of them is actually gluten. And what happens to those who have the genetic gluten sensitivity aspect, they are much more at risk of developing Hashimoto's or Graves' disease. These are two forms of autoimmune thyroid disease, whereas Hashimoto's is low thyroid production, Graves' is high thyroid production. And gluten has been shown and linked in research as well as clinical studies to both. And one of the things that happens is the the gluten exposure leads to an antibody production. Has has anyone on your show ever, because I don't want to be super redundant and I want to give new and pertinent information to your audience, has anybody ever talked about molecular mimicry? A little bit, yes. Okay. A little bit, but not we, in depth. Only only once, yes. It's it's only been covered once in seventy some shows. So so please. So imagine you're eating food that you're um and you're gluten sensitive and you're eating gluten and this gluten is disrupting your gut junction and so it's blowing a hole in your gut wall and that's one because that's one of the side effects now your gut is a, is a quarantined tube there are from your mouth to your anus your gut is its job is to break down and take from your food what will benefit you and to expel the rest um, through the feces right so right it's quarantined. And when I say quarantined, I mean it very particularly the gut is designed, even though it's inside of us, it's not inside of our bloodstream. It's quarantined off from it because if it weren't, we would die of anaphylaxis every time we ate. So the whole act of eating is an act of warfare in the sense that what we put in, we have to have the strength in our GI tract to conquer it, submit it to what we need, and expel the waste and the harmful toxins and chemicals. So there's five primary barriers that are set up within our gut that are designed to help us do this. There's more than five, but five big ones, right? The first one is the gastric acid, which breaks down protein so that we can absorb and properly digest it, so that we can absorb minerals like calcium and magnesium and zinc and selenium and copper and chromium properly. But it, it, it also destroys infectious microorganisms, things like bacteria and virus and yeast, things that we eat in our food every day that don't have the capacity to colonize our lower intestine because the acid destroys it. So the acid's a very important barrier, and a lot of people in this country take antacids like Tums and Rolaids and Nexium and Prilosec and Tagamet, and they suppress their stomach acid, and so they're destroying one of their gut barriers. Then we have the next barrier, and that next barrier is our microbiome. And we're literally outnumbered 10 to 1 by bacterial cells. We have 10 times more bacterial DNA than we have human DNA, and the bacteria talks to our immune system. There's something called immune crosstalk where this bacteria secretes chemicals that communicates to our immune system 
about potential threats in our gut so that our immune system can get ready and prepare for those threats. So if we, you know, a lot of people get on chronic antibiotic use, so they're knocking out their warning system, their bacterial warning system. These bacteria also serve to help us produce vitamins like biotin, which is vitamin B8, and vitamin K. These bacteria help us digest our food, and they help us ferment fibers that feed and fuel our intestinal cells. So very, very important barrier. The next barrier is this layer of mucus. If you've ever eaten something and then you've had to clear your throat repetitively over and over and over again, this is your immune system saying something that you ate just now, we were trying to protect you from it. You're putting down mucus as a protective coating. And inside that mucus, you make antibodies called secretory immunoglobulin A, or SIG-A for short. These are your first line of antibody defense. You make them in your saliva, you make them in your stomach and in your lower intestine and your, in your large intestine. And they're embedded in that mucosal lining because part of what they do is they bind to what the body perceives as threats immediately as a first line of defense. And if you take non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like aspirin or Celebrex or naproxen, um, ibuprofen, these are drugs that actually erode the mucosal barrier. And it's not if you took one once every several months for a headache that that's the problem. It's people that take it on a regular basis to treat pain or that take the aspirin, the low-dose aspirin from the cardiologist where they're now eroding their mucosal barrier over time just mm -hmm. to keep their blood thin, right? So it's the chronic use. And then you have the next barrier, which is called a tight junction. And these are little anchoring proteins that snap the cells of the intestine tightly together so nothing can leak through. And if those are compromised, and one of the things that gluten does is it compromises those barriers. Aside from destroying the gut cells themselves, it compromises the little barriers that hold the cells together. And that's where leaky gut comes in, which I'm sure you've all heard of. Yes, yes. Uh, it's one of the more popular topics, so I won't, I won't go into the depths of that. But So we get this leaky gut that happens right behind the gut walls, the fifth barrier. It's called the GALT, G-A-L-T. T, gastro-associated lymphoid tissue. Think of the GALT as the intestinal tonsils. It is 70 to 80% of the entire immune system, and it's, it's wrapped around the small intestine, and it's there on purpose. It's there to protect you from anything that breaks any of those other four barriers and gets through the quarantine. It's the last line of defense. And so it's highly alerted and it's on guard. So imagine now we've got a leaky gut and something comes through that doesn't belong. And maybe this, if it, if, it, if it weren't leaking, maybe this is a food protein that would be otherwise harmless. But, but it didn't go through the proper checks and it didn't get tagged by our body as friendly. So it got through it. It leaked into the immune system. And the immune system says, hey, we need to take care of this. This looks like it could be a bad guy. Let's attack it. And so it does. And over time, and this is over, when I say time, this is over years. This is why a lot of people eat things and they don't feel sick right away. They develop autoimmune disease over decades. So these right. things that are leaking through, the immune system is attacking. And some of these things that leak through look like your organs, look like your tissues. Okay, so let's say that you're eating these proteins, they're leaking through, your immune system is attacking them. And a lot of these proteins look like your thyroid gland. So then your body, after years of attacking this, this substance that it feels like is a foreign threat, 
it now turns its attention to the thyroid gland and says, you know what, that looks like what we've been attacking for the last three or four years. Let's start attacking the thyroid gland. And so we lose what's called self-recognition. And this is when we call this molecular mimicry, meaning that the molecules that are leaking through the intestine that the immune system is attacking look enough like our own tissues that when the immune system attacks these things that are leaking through, if they mimic other organ tissues, then the process of molecular mimicry is when our immune system also goes to attack our organs as a result of this recognition of something that would otherwise be normal as foreign because it's leaking through the barrier unchecked. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Perfectly. Yes. So now we've got an autoimmune response. And on average, it takes about three decades for an autoimmune disease to develop. Now, that, that's why it's so important to not judge this based on how you feel. Now, it is important to judge what you eat based on how you feel. In essence, if you eat something and you feel bad, don't eat it, right? Listen to your body. But sometimes we eat things, and our body is resilient and adaptive. And as it's adapting, if it's got a good adaptation reserve, we're not really all that symptomatic until those adaptation processes start to break down. And it's when those processes start to break down and we lose our ability to adapt to our environment and our behaviors, that's when the illness shows up in a big way, and that's when we typically get a diagnosis. 30 years later. 30 years later. <laughs> I, you, you have a way of talking. I swear you've designed it for me. For whatever reason, the way nope, you explain nope, things. No, nope, for me. <laughs> it's just, it, it, it's, it's, you're my people. <laughs> well, I'm happy I'm your people. I'm so glad I can be I can be speak coherently and that it's understood because a lot of this stuff can get overly confusing. And um my ego's not so big that I want to use big words, but I, I think it's important that people understand concepts that that way they can empower themselves. I'm a very big believer in self empowerment and I know a lot of your listeners are some of them may have already gone through their struggles and come out on the other side because they're getting great information from from you and your guests. But many of them are still on that journey, and I think clarity clarity and communication is is a number one priority if we're going to try to help somebody empower themselves to get better. Mm. Absolutely, mm. I love that right there. I love that. I, I because I think explanation is what is what creates resolve in people when they really understand how something works, then they go, ah, like they, it, it seals the deal, so to speak, where you just can't, can't do it. I mean, we have talked to so many people about gluten and, and amazing, intelligent, I mean, just amazing people. But sometimes it's just also when you need to get it. You know, there's a certain, like, you know, someone can repeat something a hundred times and then all of a sudden uh, a flip switches and you get it. You know, it's just, uh <sighs> Yeah, a moment, a light bulb moment. It's hard. It's hard. <laughs> Dr. Osborne, help me. So let me let me let's let's preface that. So so when we talk about when we, when I talk about functional medicine, there's really three primary areas in our life and our control that either make us successful or make us fail. And we can categorize those areas. Imagine a triangle, right? Imagine a triangle. And at the core of this triangle is your genetic code. It's your DNA right? 
you can't change that genetic code. You can change the way it behaves. If you think of a gene like a light switch, the switch can be turned off or on. And whether the switch is off or on is, is not good or bad. It's neither, right? So like, let me give you an example. If you're reading a book, you want the light on, right? But if you're going to bed, you want the light off. So which position is bad? They're both good depending on the circumstance. Does that make sense? I love that. Yes. Perfect. So yes. if, if your genes can be flipped off or on, imagine that you're flipping them on at the wrong time. Or imagine that you're flipping them off at the wrong time. You need certain genes to work. You need certain genes to help code for stomach acid. But they're being flipped off when you're eating, right? And that is the wrong time. It's not the bad gene. It's the wrong time. So then we, we now, so again, go back to that triangle. There's three walls on this triangle. One of those walls is chemistry, biochemistry specifically. And biochemistry is applied nutrition. Uh, so think of chemistry as something under your control in this sense. If we define chemistry as anything that can come into the body that can either help you or hurt you, now we have a clearer understanding that's, that's very basic, right? So this could be food. It could be environmental chemicals like pesticides or heavy metals. This could be molds and mycotoxins. Uh, this could be volatile organic compounds, petrochemicals, whatever it might be, right? Things in our environment that we're being exposed to on a, on a basis that affects our internal chemistry in ways we can't see or even necessarily feel immediately. And sometimes we can and sometimes we can't. But it's still something we can control to a large extent. So that's chemistry in a nutshell. Then you have the physical control. Physical, there's this, there's this old saying, maybe you've heard it, square tires don't roll. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that structure dictates function. Okay, so on, on a, I don't know if you ever took physics in high school or college, but you know, this is a principal law. Structure dictates function. The shape of something dictates how it works. And this is true in chemistry because molecules have different shapes. They just have shapes that we can't see without magnifying glasses or looking very deeply. But when I talk about physical, I'm talking about gross anatomy. So for an example there would be somebody who has a lack of muscle tone, somebody who has scoliosis, somebody who has an antalgic gait where they're walking funny because they have painful arthritis in their knees. These are structure-function relationships. Somebody mm -hmm. who doesn't exercise. because when it's, So how does that impact this whole thing? Well, I mean, I'm going to give you one example, but there's thousands of examples we could go into. But the, the one that, that is probably one of the most important is that a lack of motion and movement, again, this is physical, a lack of motion and movement reduces lymphatic flow. Well, you need lymphatic flow to detoxify. You're not going to not get exposure to toxins. Everybody gets exposure. It's not an issue of whether you get exposure. It's an issue of how much and how good you are at getting rid of that exposure. Well, one of the ways we get rid of that exposure is physical. It's through motion and movement. So when we move, it pumps our lymphatic fluids, and it helps to drain and detoxify our system. If we don't move, those toxins accumulate, and our bucket fills up quicker. Does that make sense? So that's, that's just one example of physical in the, in, the, in the realm of physicality, what we can see, the gross physical anatomy or the gross physical function of the body, very, very important to flipping on and off those genetic switches to help our body function in an optimal environment. And then the third piece is emotional. And the reason I got into this whole conversation is what you said a minute ago. You said it's hard. Now, <laughs> I say that it's easy. Who is right, you or me? We're both right. And this, because that third wall is the emotional wall, it's our thoughts, okay? So if you think about our thoughts dictate our reality, you, 
probably heard that before. I'm not the first person to say it. But what you believe to be true becomes your truth. So if going gluten-free and going grain-free is hard, then it will be painstakingly hard. But if you wrap your mind around the fact that it can be easy, that maybe there is a learning curve, and that going through that learning curve might be challenging but not necessarily hard, and then it just becomes a matter of dedicating the time, the resources, and the energy into that learning curve so that it becomes easy. Does that make sense? So a lot of this becomes a mindset issue. But how do we develop the mindset? How do we commit to the mindset? Because this is where so many people struggle with gluten. It's committing to the mindset of whether or not they even need to be gluten-free. Because you've got half of the scientists saying it doesn't exist. The other half are saying, you're you're idiots, it does exist. And everybody (laughs) in between trying to sell you every product to either clear gluten or to protect you from gluten. Right? And so you've got all this noise, this marketing noise. But if we clear all the complication, we say, how do we get somebody to commit to the diet? Well, first of all, we educate them on whether or not it's what they need to commit to. So the first step is discovery. And that goes back to chemistry. So if you go back to that wall in the triangle, which was the chemistry wall, you've got to understand what your unique nature – this is what functional medicine is about. It's identifying your unique blueprint, your unique chemical blueprint, so that you know as a unique individual, because everybody's different, what it is that works for you, what it is that will work for you so that you then can educate yourself about it and commit to doing it. Does that make sense? Because without having that knowledge base first, we can't go through the process of grieving. So we go back to psychology, and there's five <laughs> phases of grief, right? right and the first, right. one of the first besides anger is denial. We say, oh, that's not me. I don't need to be free. That's just not for me, right? And so we deny, 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 and then we bargain. Well, okay, I'll eat, a, I'll eat it sometimes, right? Okay, <laughs> only on the weekends, right? Do you live in my head? <laughs> yeah, I live in your head. I'm in your head. I'm a little tiny Dr. Osborne microbe just right in there. You're reading my thoughts. Now, that's not nice. Get out. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and so then you come around finally in that whole process to acceptance, but you can't ever get to acceptance unless you have clarity on the front end. And the only way you can get clarity is you have to measure biochemistry to get that clarity. You have to understand whether or not it's right for you because if we speculate, we speculate against ourselves and we justify whatever choices that we want to make based on whatever mood that we're in. And when you're dealing with food, understand that the definition of a drug is it's anything that makes you feel, think, or act differently. And food fits that definition to the T. Mm, and exactly. grains can be very addictive. There are proteins. You, you, you may have had guests talk about gluteomorphins in caseomorphins. These are morphine-like proteins found in dairy and grain that are highly addictive. You can't combat addiction without an education, without knowing that there's even an addiction, right? And if you look at the 10 steps program for alcoholics, the first step is 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 acknowledgement that you even have a problem, right? And you you can never acknowledge the fact that you have a problem if you don't know that it's your problem, or if that you're you think it may be a problem, but you never get clarity on whether or not it is. And so the first step has to be the discovery process. What is your unique nature? What is your unique chemistry? Is this right for you? Is this a trend? You went gluten-free and you felt better, but it, did you feel better because you were going gluten-free or did you feel better because you were eliminating a lot of pesticides? Or did you feel better because wheat in and of itself, you're allergic to it? Or did you feel better because there's a subfamily of proteins that aren't glutens called amylase trypsin inhibitors found in certain grains but not in other grains that also cause gastrointestinal inflammation that leads to leaky brain syndrome? So then you 
get the brain fog and the brain problems. So there's all kinds of reasons as to why your diet change may have made you feel better, but if you don't have the clarity as to what changes created what outcome, then you tend to justify cheating when you want to cheat, and then you tend to have a recurrent theme of autoimmune disease. Because understand this, if you walk away with any information from this conversation today, it's that the person who has one form of autoimmunity, if they do not discover why it's there, they will develop up to seven more forms of autoimmunity in their lifetime, statistically speaking. Anybody. Now, yes. And if that <laughs> no, is the, if that's the case, and it is, then we have to ask, well, how does that affect us? Some people say, oh, it's just autoimmune disease. I'll just live with it. I'll take the drugs. I'll take the anti-inflammatories. Well, you're forfeiting 26 years of life when you have autoimmune disease. People with autoimmunity die 26 years earlier or sooner than people without autoimmunity. So how many of you in your audience do you think would answer this question, yes, I would like to give up 26 years of my life? No one, right? No brainer. No one. So understand that, so that that's what autoimmune does. And it's not, doesn't, it doesn't, it's not that it just shaves years of your life. It's that it shaves years of quality of your life. Because if we look at the mechanisms behind the treatment for autoimmune disease, depending on the kind, because, I mean, there's over 90 different forms of recognized and accepted recognized. When I say recognized, I mean everybody kind of agrees there's about 90 different forms. There are probably a lot more forms than that if we really start looking at the underlying chemical mechanisms of some of these other diseases. For example, there are forms of autoimmune heart disease that don't get classified as autoimmune disease. They get classified as heart disease. There are forms of cancer that don't get classified as autoimmunity. They get classified as cancer. And we know the underlying mechanisms, but we just don't classify them as such. So there's a lot of misinterpretation of the data that's out there when you hear, you know, the Cancer Foundation saying there's this many cases of cancer. Well, how many of them were autoimmune? Nobody really publishes that study and makes that available, right? That's called missing the elephant in the room. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, just in the U.S. alone. You're looking at all different things, and you're missing the huge problem. There's there's 46 million potential cases, probably a lot more than that, of autoimmunity that, that again, that, that we feel like is just in the U.S. alone. So that means 46 million Americans are going to die 26 years earlier than their counterparts, but it's the quality of life issue, too, because, you know, if we look at the primary autoimmune diseases that we see people affected by, uh, we see auto, and these are the, these are the more common ones. They, they're the ones that affect your muscles and joints. These are things like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, um, ankylosing spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis, scleroderma, dermatomyositis. They're all just they all affect your joints, your bo- your bones, your muscles, your soft tissue. Then there's the neurological forms, myasthenia gravis. Okay, as because we talked about it earlier, it's not that common, but it's definitely neurological because it's affecting your optic nerves. Um, then we have multiple sclerosis, and we have Parkinson's disease or Lou Gehrig's amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS, right? So these are forms of neurological. Migraine headache is a form of neurological autoimmune disease that a lot of people don't know about. Um, then you have the gastrointestinal versions. So there's Crohn's and ulcerative colitis and celiac disease. Mm-hmm. And then you have liver autoimmune hepatitis. And you have kidney nephropathies, which is an autoimmune condition, so it can affect your kidney. And then you have autoimmune disease in the brain. Um, Alzheimer's uh, is a neurological uh, that's now being called type 3 diabetes, but there's an autoimmune component um, to this as well. So dementia, right? 
brain. This is why some people get brain fog. This is why it affects their brain. It can cause dizziness, so there's autoimmunity in your cerebellum called cerebellar ataxia. Um, and then you can have um, other forms of autoimmunity that affect other organs. Obviously, Hashimoto's and Graves affecting your thyroid. You can have um, autoimmune disease of the adrenal glands. The, so you can get an autoimmune disease that will shut down your adrenal gland. It doesn't matter the name of the or autoimmune it disease. It, 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 yeah, it, it just matters that if it's there, you've got a problem that is a chemical problem or an environmental problem in nature that you have to self-explore. And part of self-exploration is an education, and part of self-exploration is, in my opinion, with autoimmunity, is working with somebody who knows what the heck they're talking about and doing. And there's so many people that don't, and, and, and the vast majority of them are the medical doctors who are experts in treating autoimmunity because, again, they're experts in treating it with drugs that don't resolve why it's there. So they're great at that. They're great at what they do, which is here's this medication to treat your symptoms, but they're horrible with outcomes because treating the, the disease with the drug leads to the same early death rate and actually leads to earlier death rates. An additional Because some of the drugs create additional problems that now we've got secondary sequelae and consequences of the, of the side effects of the medications long term. So and that's, our, that's a pet peeve of mine. Oh, that's a pet peeve of mine. You know, the, well, for the commercials, you know, just for anything, but the long commercials that have the disclaimer at the end that we're all just so, like, used to hearing. Like, it's no problem. Like, all these other side effects. Your left arm is going to fall off? Yeah, your left arm is going to fall off, and you're not going to be able to walk and, and all this stuff. But no problem. You won't have any, you know, uh, But the picture or, shows or, them happy. Right. That's, yeah, it's, Marketing 101 is window dressing. Marketing Make the window dressing pretty. Yeah. Fabulous. They do a fabulous job of it. Oh and I'm, look, I, I want to be clear. I'm not anti-medicine. Um, I'm not. I, I think there's a, a very great time and place for medicine. I, I, I work very closely with a lot of medical doctors, and, and we have great relationships. I'm not anti-medicine. I'm anti. It has its place, right? Yes, in, in an acute care models where we've got a broken bone or a gunshot or a knife right. wound or a car accident, and we need to be patched together, stitched together, sewn up. Or when we have uh, a cancer that absolutely is going to invade another tissue and the best possible outcome that we have for that is potential removal of the tumor. Look, we've got to have those types of care and those types of doctors around. They do great work. But when it comes to treating chronic degenerative disease that are lifestyle, that are lifestyle caused, it's time for doctors to, to look at patients and be tough with them. You know, it's, it's kind of like um, with your children. You don't let your children run all over you. You, you have to be tough with them in a loving way. And in doctors, instead right. of being tough with their patients, they enable horrible behaviors by saying diet has nothing to do with your autoimmune disease or your diabetes, really. Right. Um, eat well and exercise, and that's this is generic, and that's the information they get. And then they go on, and they're like, well, okay, I'm exercising, but, but I'm expertise. gaining weight. Like you said, right. you know, if people look at the conventional medical education, they are trained in a, an acute situation, acute medicine. They're not trained in chronic illness. So we're, we're, we're embarking on, on things that they're really not well-trained in, so they better shift. <laughs> they all need to go well, functional I, and integrative and, and understand the whole, the whole body. I don't, I don't even think they, they need to do that. Together? I think they just Yeah, I just think they need to recognize that, that there's a missing element to what they're capable of providing and that they need to, to man up or lady up and refer and, and not have such an right. ego that referral gets in their way. That they and, could do and, everything. No, that's so true, right? A piece to the puzzle. You have one that, that handles nutrition and lifestyle and one that handles acute. That's right. 
that's ideal. Refer. Well, and at this point, there's so much research, and and I I didn't see that episode of the doctors, but um, where they you said they shut him down. I mean, if somebody oh, tells me that, if somebody were to say there's no research, the very first thing I'm going to say is, are you a moron? Do you not read the journals? Because I can provide you with thousands of research studies that back up what oh, yeah. I say. I'm not well, just they didn't this give anecdotal him a chance to person. Respond, so they shut him so off and just yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. And, and he may even like, actually oh. have probably responded. And they just cut that segment. That sometimes happens. Exactly. It was so frustrating. I was like, oh, my God. Do you remember that, Dana? We talked about that. I was like, oh, my God. All these people, millions of viewers, right? They just shut it down. Conventional medicine really doesn't recognize this being a problem. And I was like, my jaw was on the floor. I was like, oh, my God. That's craziness, right? That's called sponsors. Right. they're protecting their sponsorships because a lot of their 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 public TV like that they have a lot it's a lot of drug it's a By lot Kellogg? of drug sponsorship <laughs> exactly right, <pharmaceuticals laughs> well I, I I know oh. I've been invited to speak but then on on a number of kind of national media places and then when they actually read uh, my material and and look at it I've been declined after I've been invited a number of times oh. for that very reason. Because they don't want to upset their sponsors. And when I ask, you know, when my agent, we kind of go through this whole thing, and why, why, why did you invite us in the first place? And now you're, it's because they, they just have to protect the pocketbook. And I mean, it really is about mm-hmm. that. It's that simple. It is about the money. And I, look, I, I understand that. But when you're running your business off of the auspice that you're trying to provide valid information that is, that is clear and concise and objective, and you're putting yourself out there as a media source to be able to provide that kind of information, then provide it. Don't cloak right. yourself behind your sponsors. Um, find right. different sponsors that support the message. That's that's me. That's a that's whole other show, Doctor Osborne. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's that's I'm right on with you right there. That's right perfection. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh. Okay, so let's jump in because we seriously, I could have an absolute heyday with you. I just need to 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 just spend the weekend. No, <laughs> just kidding. Um, but let's talk about hidden gluten in thyroid medications in particular, because I think this is so important, you know, for, for so many thyroid um, patients that are taking medication. They really don't understand where gluten can pop up in, in their thyroid medication of all places. Yeah, so in, in thyroid medication, probably the most no, – now, let's define gluten. I, I think let's be clear on when I say gluten versus when other people say gluten. Um, because even amongst functional medicine practitioners, I have a very different definition, and, and, and it's because the technical definition of gluten, in other words, we're talking about the botany, the plant-based definition of gluten, is that gluten is the name of the family of proteins. It's, so it's not one thing. It's, it's hundreds of different forms of protein. So it's the name of the family of proteins found within the seeds of grass. That is the definition. And uh, this was actually uh, this was defined by somebody who shares my same last name, uh, T.J. Osborne, which who who was he's, he's considered the the father of modern plant chemistry uh, because he's he's the guy who's discovered a lot of these gluten proteins originally. Um, so gluten is defined as this family of storage proteins found in the seeds of grass. Well, corn is a grass, and rice is a grass, and sorghum is a grass, oats is a grass. So there's no I, I want to be clear on this. There's no such thing as a gluten-free grain. Now, let's define what everybody else is, is calling gluten, and that, that's, this will make better sense for, for everybody listening. The definition 
by FDA law and FDA rule is that gluten is alpha gliadin. Now, alpha gliadin is one type of gluten found in wheat, barley, and rye. And it was discovered in 1952 by a, a um, group of scientists at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. And they did, did a study on 10 patients with celiac disease, and they discovered alpha gliadin as a trigger in celiac disease. This is the platform for the definition as right. we move forward from 1952. And that's a big part of the problem is gluten is not just alpha gliadin. There are over there are over 900 forms of known gluten and probably more than that, and we just haven't discovered them. And there was a group of researchers in Australia that discovered 400 new ones in 2010. 40 of them were more toxic than alpha gliadin. So your doctor wow. doing gluten testing is measuring alpha gliadin. And you right. may not be reactive severely to alpha gliadin, but may be reacting to some of the other forms. Or you may have such a such a destroyed immune system that you're not producing antibodies, and so when we're using antibodies as our marker, we get a false negative. That's why we go back to genetics. We want to know what your genes are going to do when you're exposed to gluten. We don't want to know whether or not you're capable of making antibodies. We want to know what your genes are going to do. Does that make sense? Totally. Now, Absolutely. Now that we understand where that definition is, so traditional gluten means it's, it's alpha gliadin found in wheat, barley, and rye. So when you go to the grocery store, the FDA labeling law says that if a product contains alpha gliadin, but they don't call it alpha gliadin, they call it gluten. So they're, they're using gluten, in my opinion. Scientifically, they're using it incorrectly. If the product gotcha. has less than 20 parts per million, less than 20 parts per million of alpha gliadin, it can be labeled gluten-free. Now, if it's, if it's oatmeal, it automatically can be labeled gluten-free, unless it's cross-contaminated with 20 parts per million. If it's corn, it can automatically be labeled gluten-free. If it's rice, it can auto be ma automatically be labeled gluten-free, even though technically there's no such thing as gluten-free rice, oatmeal, or corn. They all have forms of gluten in them. And understand from a – remember I was talking about physical earlier? I was talking about shape dictates function, right? Mm-hmm. Glutens are all so similar in shape and structure that they have a tendency to interact with that genetic receptor that we measure for and create the same inflammatory response, whether it's alpha gliadin, okay, or some other form of, glu of gluten. And this is, why, this is why my opinion on this matter is so varied and different from 90, probably 99% of other guests, even guests that you may have had on or other experts that you may have talked to gluten about. And the research confirms what I'm saying. There are studies that show that corn gluten interacts with your DNA more aggressively than wheat gluten if you're gluten sensitive. There are studies corn, that show corn that... Corn whips my fanny. <laughs> it whips your corn fanny. It knocks me out. Oh, yeah, it just knocks me out. Well, so Boom. to answer your question on that note, to answer your question about Synthroid, which is one of the most common drugs prescribed for low thyroid, Synthroid contains corn. And the research on gluten sensitivity is clear that 20 parts per million, one exposure of gluten uh, at 20 parts per million can create an inflammatory response for up to two months. And if we're trying to put autoimmune disease to bed and give it a break and, and give your immune system a break, even that small amount in your medicine can be a trigger to perpetuate the autoimmunity, which sets up a stage for a dependency of the medication. So the, the same thing that you're using that helps you is actually also something right. that's hurting you. And that, that in and of itself... Uh, you know, for some people, Synthroid works great, and it's a lifesaver for them, I mean, compared to where they were, right, which may have been on the floor with no energy at all and non-functional. 
And so they take this medicine and it changes their life. But then they get to a point where they think this is as good as it's ever going to get. And they never go back to think about, okay, maybe this whole thing was gluten and maybe that's that corn that's in my medication. And maybe if I just had the right testing done, got the medical necessity, had my doctor then write me a compounded prescription, even if it's Synthroid, but without the corn filler, then now I can still get the benefit of this medication at the same time while I'm trying to figure out why the thyroid is malfunctioning. In other right. words, the medicine can be used to improve your quality choice. of life. Right. What, and there are other options too. There's armor and tyrosine. There's all kinds of different options for thyroid medication. But the, the, the big point on gluten is that you've got to look at your fillers. And I have a list on Gluten-Free Society of hidden names for corn, which is the most common in thyroid medications. If, if your listeners want to go there, they can just there's – a, there's a, on the main page, it says foods to avoid. If they click that, one of the foods to avoid is going to be corn. And if they click that, there's a whole bunch of hidden terms for corn that they can find. It's there. It's free. Anybody can access it. Now, Awesome. And is that on drpeterosborne.com, Dr. Osborne? No, that's, a, that's on glutenfreesociety.org. Gotcha. O-R-G. Okay. Awesome. Now, now so I want to get into one other I, thing. If go, go, go ahead. Okay. No, I don't want to derail you. Go ahead. Because <laughs> you, ask, down, you asked me about the nutrition, so the nutritional element to, to the thyroid. So I said in the beginning there's two types of thyroid disease. There's autoimmune thyroid disease, but I didn't talk about the other one. The other one is nutritional deficiency thyroid disease. This is the most under-recognized and under-diagnosed form yes, of is. thyroid disease. And we know this because if any of you have ever used table salt, it was iodized. The government mandated that table salt be iodized because of goiter. Goiter was epidemic in this country because when people originally colonized the Americas, they lived coastally, either on the east coast or the west coast. So seafood was readily available and iodine was a regular part of the diet. But as people migrated centrally, what we had was mass iodine deficiency that was showing up as epidemic goiter and thyroid disease. And so this was discovered that – and so iodine was a deficient element in the diet. So they iodized the salt to solve that problem on, on a nationwide level. But then we got the heart disease scare, and everybody's been told not to eat salt. So now we're seeing nutritional iodine deficiency kind of make a comeback. Yep. And, and so we're seeing a lot of people develop thyroid dysfunction as a result of that. Now, that being said, my, my advice is don't guess test, right? If you, if you think that iodine deficiency is something you might have, do what's called an iodine loading test. There are a number of labs that will do this. Don't test plasma iodine. It's not accurate. It will change from day to day based on your diet. But if you do a loading test, it's a functional outcome test that will measure whether or not your body, your gland, is deficient in iodine. And the way this is done is you have, some doctor will give you 50 milligrams of iodine and have you pee for 24 hours and measure the output. And can, I, can I just throw something real quick in there, Dr. Osborne? Mainstream sure. medicine will not test it. They refuse to test it because they say that thyroid medication, because it contains iodine, will correct an iodine deficiency. I'm here to tell you that is not true. <laughs> just saying. Yeah, it won't. It, thyroid it won't medication because the, will not fix, right. <laughs> no, the iodine is Take synthetically that. bound, right? <clears throat> the iodine, which is, if we think, what is T for? T, <clears throat> T stands for tyrosine which is an amino acid. The four is iodine. So T4, it's tyrosine plus four molecules of iodine. So we think about nutritionally, okay, we got to have the iodine to build the thyroid hormone and particularly to build the T4. 
if we're taking synthetic T4, yes, there's iodine there, but it's already bound. And iodine is not just for thyroid hormone. It has other purposes no. in the body. One of its main purposes Lots is to protect Lots of other us purposes. From, yeah, right. from radiation. <laughs> yeah, it protects us from radiation, from ionizing radiation, and, and it prevents sunburns and does all kinds of wonderful things. It prevents breast cancer. Um, so we've got, we've got, you know, nutritionally speaking, what are all the reasons we could develop a, uh, a, a iodine, not an iodine, a thyroid deficiency or a hypothyroidism nutritionally? Well, if we go back up and we look at the brain and the pituitary gland, we make TSH, thyroid-stimulating hormone, which in order to make that hormone, we've got to have magnesium. We've got to have adequate protein in the diet, where I'll see a lot of people develop um, – is if they're really trying to restrict their protein. Um, But we need magnesium, we need zinc, we need B12, and we need protein to make TSH. If we are making TSH fine and okay, and that stimulates our thyroid gland to produce T4. And in order to make T4, we need what we talked about a minute ago. We need tyrosine, but we also need iodine. But then in order to build tyrosine and iodine, in order for our body to... Think of T... Uh, T4, before it's built, think of it as an assembly line where we have tyrosine and we have iodine, and it's, they're rolling down this assembly line, and we have to put them together, right? Just like a car factory where we maybe we have you know, the doors and we have the tires and we have the windshields, and all these things have to be assembled onto the car before the end product of the car is complete. Well, it's the same thing with your thyroid hormone. You have to assemble it. And so what assembles the tyrosine and the iodine uh, are the workers, that are standing on either side of the conveyor belt as the parts are rolling down it. And those workers are vitamin B2, riboflavin, and vitamin C. Those are the molecular workhorses of the T4 assembly line. And so if you have those two in place, then you can appropriately build a T4 molecule. And then once you have T4, it's released into the circulation peripherally, and then it is converted into T3 by your liver and by your peripheral tissues like your muscle. That conversion requires an enzyme, a deiodinase enzyme, which is selenium-driven. So you need selenium to do that. And if you are selenium deficient, you can't do that very well. So you become, as you guys have probably talked about before, a poor converter, right? T4 to T3 poor converter. It has to do with selenium and iron deficiency because the other thing you need there is iron. So if you don't have adequate iron or if you're iron deficient anemic, which is one of the most common deficiencies in gluten sensitivity, um, you could be a poor thyroid converter. And then once you have T3, if you get to that point, now you have to let the T3 has to talk to the DNA inside your cell to upregulate your metabolism. So how does it do that? There's this process in our cells called heterodimerization. And it's just a fancy word that means we have to combine the T3 with something else to form a key to unlock our DNA. Think of our DNA. It needs, part of our DNA needs to be unlocked. It's like a door. We have to unlock that door to activate that DNA. But we have to have the right key to do that. And T3 is only half of the key. The other half of the key is vitamin D or vitamin A. So you need vitamin D and or vitamin A to combine with T3 to unlock the metabolism and, and upregulate our DNA. And then then from there, you need omega-3 fatty acids in that, in that last step of the chemical process. So if you're deficient in any one of those things nutritionally, um, 
you're out of business as it relates to the normal biochemical pathways of your thyroid function. And so you can develop the symptoms of hypothyroidism in any one of those steps. Now, in any one of those one, deficiencies. Go any ahead. one of them. And that's why if you're if you have a thyroid disease and you haven't had all of those things tested, then you've got to find a doctor who's willing to do those things. Um, well, and not test the that's what, what I was that? just about to say, Dr. Osborne. I was just about to say, you know, um, is that it's got to be one of the first things you do is, you know, when you're listening to someone like Tiffany or myself that comes into your office and says, you know, all these things are going on, you're like, well, have you had your vitamin B, vitamin D? You know, have you had these things tested? Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking it might, must be one of the first things you do is, is test vitamin and mineral deficiencies. It has the to be. The crazy thing um, is yes. thyroid hormone will not fix any of these deficiencies. No. So if you have, right, if you're hypothyroid and you just get put on medication, it's not going to fix any of these deficiencies. So you, you've essentially missed the boat, We what you talked about earlier. You, you went on a pharmaceutical that did some symptom management or corrected that, but didn't correct all the deficiencies per se. And that's, and that's fundamentally what I was talking about before, biochemistry, understanding thyroid biochemistry and understanding that biochemistry as a subject matter is nutrition. Biochemistry is nutrition on a molecular level. It's just that the words that we use, instead of using vitamin B2, the words in the biochemistry textbook would, might say something like riboflavin or nicotine adenine dinucleotide. And so who knows what that means, right? Most people right, don't. Right. <laughs> um, so if you don't understand that the biochemistry words that you're reading in the textbook correlate to vitamins and minerals, and most most of this isn't taught. Like like it's not unless you take a specifically a nutritional biochemistry course, you don't learn this material under that auspice. You learn it as okay, I got to memorize this for the test, and then I'm going to move on. Right, right. Which which is I a sad honestly, thing. I have to applaud you. That is the right. best explanation we, we have, have heard. ever heard. That was awesome. Here it is. Awesome. Hands awesome. Down. Awesome. I have goosebumps. It was awesome. I did too. I've never it, heard it, it was also explained me, like that. No, and it was also making me a little angry because I'm thinking, you know, there's all these people on all this medicine. And, you know, not that I'm telling anybody to get off your medicine. Please don't. And that's not no, my no. point. My point uh-huh. is that you, if, you could, if we could have just started somewhere, like let's take me, for example. I love to do this. Let's take me, for example. If we could have just taken me and looked at in the very, very beginning when I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's and looked at just my deficiencies, where would I be today? What me- what level of medicine? How many milligrams would I be on, if any? If but any, your adrenal glands. Yes. Her adrenal if glands, Doctor Osborne, a, were a huge part of the picture. Huge. They were. They and that be. wasn't even that wasn't even tested or, or checked or talked about. <laughs> right. for, that's the reason I started thyroid nation. Because adrenal dysfunction doesn't exist in in the eyes of medicine unless <laughs> you have autoimmune adrenal dis, you know dis, dysfunction, or if you have a pituitary tumor that's that's causing a suppression of adrenocorticotropic hormone and then those things can be tested for and measured for but typically if you don't have those major 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 problems then they're gonna what is adrenal burnout what does that really mean what does adrenal fatigue mean doctors poo-poo it because they don't understand it right and it's huge well i can feel it so uh, (laughs) talk to me yet every doctor will tell you you're under too much stress Right, and that you're probably depressed and you're under too much stress, but they don't correl- correlate the stress with the adrenal glands, right? I mean, how do we well, adapt to nutrients. stress? 
Right. Certain nutrient deficiencies can actually increase people's stress. Like you handle stress differently maybe because you're nutrient deficient in the things that the adrenal glands need. I mean, oh. Absolutely. Well, I'm, vitamin I'm B5 up. is also <laughs> known as the anti-stress vitamin because of its role in cortisol regulation and adrenal function. It won a Nobel Prize in medicine for that discovery. Roger Williams, famous biochemist, discovered vitamin B5 because he found that when mice had vitamin B5 deficient diets, their brown coats would turn gray. He oh, named it wow. the anti-graying factor, and he also named it the anti-stress factor. And the discovery won a Nobel Prize in in medicine because it, it's the discovery that led to some of our our knowledge about how the adrenal glands actually work and make hormones. And a lot of people with vitamin B5 deficiency is very common. Um, a lot of people with panathenic, panathenic deficiency will start to develop stress maladaptation because their adrenal glands atrophy. They don't work as well. And they'll develop what's called a burning neuropathy, burning feet, burning hands, mm-hmm. burning feet. They'll have crushing fatigue regardless of sleep. And uh, and it and it just persists until somebody steps in and really measures that. And I mean, because a lot of doctors will support the thyroid function with glandulars and other things. But I think fundamentally, if we go, really go back to fundamentals, the fundamentals, the reason why we test vitamins and minerals in every single patient 100% of the time is because they are essential for human function. And what that means is you cannot get them unless you eat them. And if your gut is broken, as so many people with autoimmune disease have that problem, then you, even if you are eating them, you may not be able to absorb them. Right. So two things that have to be fundamentally looked at in absolutely 100% of people is gut function and nutritional status and because diet. that sets the stage for everything else. It does. And that you just said that, and it sounded so simple, but for some it reason is. no one's – no one's screaming it from the rooftops like I want to. I mean, I'm thinking I have high, uh, my B12 is, is over the high mark, and I'm thinking I'm uh, B12 deficient or low because I'm unable to, to utilize, to methylate my vitamins. I'm not sure. It's, it's on the so list you, to do. What it hears you know like what I, I hear you, you saying, saying is that if your B12 is high, then you're probably having serum testing done. You correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. But if you're taking B12 in high doses, 2,000 plus micrograms, you're gonna have high levels in your blood if you check your blood. Has nothing to do I'm with not methylation. Not taking anything right now. Okay. He doesn't take any any B12. No. And no, it's still I don't high. Take any B12. Yes, and it's still yeah. high. Had, did you have a history <laughs> of a lot of B12? No. Have you had your uh, Have you had your methylation markers checked? MTRR, no. MTR, <laughs> MTHFR. No. no. Nope. Bing, bing, nope. bing, bing. There we go. Yeah, so, so you need to have those. You need to have those checked. Right. And yeah, for sure. B B twelve plays a different role in the thyroid. It, it it yeah, it's important for TSH, but it plays a it plays a secondary role, which is not, a, not when I say secondary, I mean non primary, meaning it's not directly involved in the pathway of thyroid chemistry, like some of the other nutrients. But it it plays such a secondary role because of its role in something called macrocytic anemia, which is when your red blood cells don't mature properly and they stay large and clumsy and they don't have the ability to carry oxygen. And even if your thyroid is working properly, it'll act like it's not working properly because you need oxygen in that pathway to drive all of those processes. And so you can, that's why it's secondary, not primary. It's a secondary reason why the thyroid can be broken because of what's called macrocytic anemia, large cell anemia. 
Okay, well, this is just a whole other flower-filled moment level, and <laughs> I'm just ready for I'm thinking maybe you should just come over for dinner. You can just fly on up and hang out. You know, my husband and I will cook you dinner and just hang out. We're going to pick your brain for a while. I mean, wow. Oh, my gosh. Uh, okay, so I have a burning question. i gotta, I got to go back. Are you okay? okay, okay with that? I'm okay. Yeah, I'm okay. So we, you explained the difference glutens. Just amazing. So when supplements say gluten-free, is that good? Is it not covering all the glutens? Is that no? It's, is it's, that, it's um, the same as marketing? a food label. Okay, so it's we're in the trouble same there. Same as the food label. Yeah, gluten free means alpha gluten free. Unless, what do we do? unless so somebody is saying grain free. On... Okay. I mean that's a big reason Which why nobody I even does. Put, I put gluten free society <laughs> online um, as a resource for people because of partly because of that. Um, I mean, in my practice, I see, I maybe see 400 new patients a year, which isn't very many. I mean, when you consider 46 million people have autoimmunity, I can see 400, right? That's, you know, that's not a lot. But the Gluten-Free Society was actually created as a resource for people for that reason. It, it, was, my, it was my gift back to the world um, to say, look, you know, I know I can't see everybody, but here at least is this knowledge base of information and this training base for other physicians to come and learn and train so that they can get the same level of education and the same level of understanding so that they can help 400 a year each too, right? And if 500 people go through my training program, then now they're seeing 400 patients a year. We can really make an impact on this whole autoimmune realm. That's a huge piece of information. (laughs) I mean, where gluten-free can only mean anti-gluten-free. That there's would you say there's forty other? No, there's there's o- there's hundreds of forms of gluten. <laughs> oh my god, Alpha that's gluten so is scary. Just one. And okay, even if so, you look at okay. some of the labs that test some of the labs that test for these other glutens, so like there there and I'm not going to name any names um, because I, I I love all the labs. They all do a great job of just trying to be more progressive and doing and 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 helping people. But but right. some of them, they test for other forms of gluten, but they only test for a handful. It's like 12 or 13 different forms of gluten. Well, there's more than, there's more than 500 forms and probably closer to 1,000. And so there's no lab that exists currently that can test for all the different forms and give you a clear, decise, uh, decisive answer. This is why you go back to DNA. The DNA tells you whether or not a person has the genetic propensity to react to gluten, because what happens when you have positive HLA-DQ genes for gluten sensitivity is you're turning the light switch of the gene on, and the light switch you're turning on is a light switch that is designed to create inflammation to protect you from what you're eating. So it doesn't matter how you're reacting to it. It only matters that you have the propensity to react to it. It's just like this. You have the propensity to drown if you go underwater. So therefore, you don't go underwater and try to breathe. Does it, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's the right. same analogy. I so it's you. the same Loud thing with clear. gluten. If you have the genetic propensity to have a problem with it and you know that, then you, you eject it from your life in great confidence and vigor and you get educated as quickly as you can and you put yourself in a position for success. Well, if I knew for sure <sighs> I that I had the propensity, I would have that uh, empowerment and say, okay, see ya. Because I would know for sure. The not knowing for sure but if you is want the it, part that makes it, me right, you know. Right. Oh. Well, here, here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll do this as a favor to anybody listening to this podcast. 
um, if, if somebody wants to get genetically tested, if they feel like, okay, they're at a point where they can't commit one way or the other and they really need to do this, <laughs> if they go to gluten-free society and use the uh, – there's a tab at the top that says genetic testing. They can learn more about it there too. If they want to do that testing, um, we'll use a coupon code for your audience. I'll have As soon as we get off the phone, I'll have somebody create it for you guys. And um, for your audience, we'll give you a uh, – this is the highest that we can discount it um, because it's it's almost cost. And it's we'll, we'll discount it $60, and I've never discounted it that high for oh, anybody. But we'll do it for your me? audience. Yeah. I'm there. I could kiss I'm you. T- me too. I me just too. You. I'm first. I'm you first. You just became my favorite person, and, and you may very quite could have saved my life. <laughs> We're not going to turn on yeah, the well, waterworks there, but I'm doing it. Sixty bucks, yeah, gee whiz, that, that's a no-brainer. Well, that's let me. No-brainer. It's not sixty dollars for the test. It's sixty dollars off. Oh, I, I just want to. I, I just want to make sure because the test like, itself wait. is. I think it's it's three eighty five is what what the cost is. But we, it, the deepest that's, I've ever discounted is fifty dollars. It's because oh it's so close to my cost. And then when people do it, we actually hand interpret every single result that comes in. So it it requires a lot of it requires a lot of my staff's time, and and um, and energy. I can't imagine. And, I can't and so, imagine. but but again, I my job is to get people help, and I I take that very seriously. So we'll put that in, and your audience, if they want to use it, they can, and if they don't, that's fine too. But it's there. That's oh, amazing. that's fantastic! Thank, Thank you, you so much. So much. <laughs> so I have a quick question. We usually start the show with this. But I would like to, to end the show with this. What is your story? Do you have a story that that puts you in this business where you just said, "This is my life's passion"? I, my story is like multi-layered, probably like everyone else's. I, I originally started out as an amateur bodybuilder, um, just wanting to know more about nutrition, and. So I took uh, anatomy and physiology in college, and I took nutrition, and I was hooked um, from that point on. But I went on in my graduate school training um, to train at the VA hospital, the Veterans Hospital here in Houston, in the rheumatology department. And I'm a veteran. I, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm ex-military. I'm ex-Air Force, and when I'm in in this training in my graduate program. Uh, you know, I look at veterans with a special light in my eye because these people have 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 committed and they've served their country, and and I feel like they deserve they deserve a level of respect and a level of dignity. Not that all humans don't, but I just have a special place in my heart for veterans. Well, when we, when I was training in rheumatology, and rheumatology is the, is a field of autoimmune disease that affects the the muscles, bones, and joints, rheumatoid arthritis, mm-hmm. lupus, scleroderma, etc. What I saw was a travesty. Um, what was happening to these people? They would come in. Uh, my attending physician at the time, he was known for saying, these people won't get better. All we can do is appease them by lowering their pain. And so it was oh, just wow. a mill. It was a mill where these people would come in and get pain medications like, uh, or, or they'd get immune-suppressing drugs like methotrexate, uh, which is a cancer drug that, that causes severe anemia and destroys your bone marrow. And so, you know, we're on these drugs. They're not really feeling better. They're, when they follow up visit, they're not 
hey, yeah, you know, my right. pain is so much better. Or, you know, in some cases, the drugs right. do reduce pain, and I'm not saying that they can't help reduce pain at all. But the fact of the matter is, every Wednesday was what was called surgical consult day. And so what would happen was the rheumatology experts would invite the orthopedic surgeons down to the floor to consult with people whose joints were so destroyed from autoimmune disease that now they were considering a joint replacement. In other words, a, a, a manual joint right. replacement surgery. Right. So what happened is, that, is and I, what I saw, and again, I can't speak for every hospital and every doctor, but this is my experience, right, is the orthos would come in and in many cases wouldn't even look at the x-ray or the MRI of the joint. But they would sit right down in front of the patient, and they'd say, yeah, we're going to go ahead and replace that joint. We're going to schedule you for surgery. And there would be no talk of, of diet, and there would be no talk of exercise, and there would be no talk of mobility or stretching, which all of these things are very, very critical. I mean, as a bodybuilder, my background, I knew these things. Right, and I knew that a lot of pain could be misinterpreted. You could misinterpret autoimmune pain it just being tight muscles, especially in, in autoimmune diseases that affect the muscles and cause the muscles to be tighter. So in some cases, yoga, um, aggressive stretching, a lot of these things can be used to ameliorate a lot of the pain that's perceived as autoimmune, but it's not really. It's just physical pain. Mm-hmm. But none of that was ever discussed or talked about. And when I tried to discuss and talk about these things with these patients, I was forbidden. And... So one of the steps that I went through, as I said, look, if you're telling us that that none of these treatments really work and that it's just kind of a bandage to improve their quality of life and that they're going to die earlier and more miserable, why don't we at least take a handful of them and do a study? And I I took in all these research studies that I'd I'd done a lot of research in the medical library there in Houston, uh, the Jesse Jones Medical Library. And and one one of the prevailing pieces of evidence that kept coming back over and over again was that people with autoimmune arthritis, if you fasted them, their pain could almost go away within 48 hours. I mean, what would any intelligent person wow. surmise from that? It would You would surmise that it's something you're eating, right? And then when you take the model of autoimmune disease that we already have, which is celiac disease, and you say, we know what causes it, food, a food protein. Right. So here we have we know that it can cause this kind of autoimmune disease, and we know that fasting can ameliorate the pain in this form of autoimmune disease. It's not a huge leap to go from fasting to gluten and even beyond gluten. Think about other things that we could eat that could trigger this, right? So to me, it made perfect sure. sense to then start looking at food as a as a precursor or a progenitor to autoimmunity. And, and so... I did, and I brought in all this research, and I handed it to my attending, and my attending probably, uh, not probably, promptly took the information and dismissed it. And so for me, working wow. in that very frustrating environment with our veterans who were being, in my opinion, dishonored and disserviced, um, one of my very first patients in private practice after I left that environment was a terminal little girl. She had a, a form of terminal juvenile rheumatoid arthritis which is autoimmune disease, and she was given six months to live. And so her mom brought me in, or brought her in to see me, and she was gluten-sensitive. We tested her. She was gluten-sensitive. Her favorite food was pizza, and her mom refused to to, to take, take her off of her favorite food because ah. she only had six months to live. I mean, imagine being a parent. Oh, this, oh yeah. I, no, I get I, it. I, I totally yeah. get it. I can resonate with that. But But her mom... Had but autoimmune arthritis too, right. so her mom. I was able to convince her mom to go gluten free. 
and she had such such a benefit in such a short period of time that we it was about a month later that it was now we're able to convince mom to take daughter gluten free so here we had this young girl terminal go home and die go home and get ready to die there's nothing we can do for you she recently graduated high school oh my god she's on no medication her stent that was permanently embedded in her arm because she was frequenting the hospital so often to be IV'd is gone. She has no active disease. Now, this didn't take you know, 15 years to accomplish. This only took a few months to accomplish. We knew that her life was saved within months. She was asymptomatic. You take that story. For me, 46 million people with autoimmune disease that are going to die. Not all of them were terminal with six months to live. But how many people are going to die from this? I knew the information had to be out in the public eye, and that's what forged my career path. Wow, what a story. I'm like, oh my God. and tears. I can't even time. say anything. Right? I, that story alone. That story alone. And how many people, everybody should know that. Everybody should hear that story. That one story. Does she do any talking, Dr. Osborne, out of curiosity? Does she, does she, is she just enjoying her life or is she She's just enjoying her life. She doesn't, no. She doesn't want limelight. Now, I have those other limelight people. Um, They're not really limelight people. They're people that share their story. You, if you actually want to see some really miraculous stories, um, you can go to, I think we have it up on the YouTube channel. Um, it's youtube.com glutenology I think is is where you can find those yes I saw some of those there are tons of video testimonials that we've had done of people with you know similar life threatening stories with autoimmunity Um, you know everything from epilepsy to different forms of cancer to um, severe autoimmune intestinal diseases and and painful dermatological diseases skin diseases etc I mean, it's not. I mean, they're they're not miracle stories. They're miracle in their presentation only because these people struggled to find answers, like most people with autoimmunity, and had been to every expert you could imagine. In one case, I think one guy had seen like forty or fifty different dermatologists. He'd actually sat down at a dermatology conference to be like the focus of the conference because nobody knew what was wrong with wow. him. They couldn't figure it out. And within a few months, we had him clear. I mean, these are the, these are the kinds awesome. of things that are, they're they're not atypical when you go for the origin. When you look at why the origin of a person can get autoimmunity, and you address the origin and you quit trying to mitigate symptoms, even a lot of functional medicine doctors are guilty of this. They mitigate symptoms with natural agents. They say, okay, let's treat your adrenal fatigue with a glandular or with this product or that product, but they don't actually look for why you have adrenal fatigue. And again, it goes, I go, this is, I, I want to hammer this home to your audience because so many people are out there getting treatment in a natural way that is treatment no better than allopathic medical treatments beyond the fact that there are less side effects. But they're still treatments. They're still designed to cover up symptoms. They're still designed to not establish patient independence. The number one goal of the doctor, I don't care who you are, the number one goal of the doctor is to fire his patient. 
And if you get to the level where you can fire your patient and tell them to go away because they're better and they're educated and they're empowered to make intelligent decisions about who they are, then you've done your job. And if they're in your office forever and they never get better, then you're doing it wrong. And to me, that ultimately, as doctors, we have to always be scientists. If what we're doing isn't working, we have to put on a different investigation hat and we have to dig deeper. And if we're not willing to do that and we're not open-minded enough to learn and we're not open-minded enough to check our own egos and to be open to listening, right, because a big part of, of practicing is that you practice, is that every patient is an education. Every person you see is a different story, is a unique story. And you have to be open to learning from everybody who comes in the door. And you have to be open to learning from the scientific community. And you have to be open to reading. And you have to be open to study. And if, you ever, if you're a doctor and you ever find yourself quitting in any one of those arenas, you need to get the hell out of practice and save every patient that's coming through your office the headache and the frustration of your mediocrity. And that's, I'm, I feel very strongly about that mm. um, because I love functional medicine. I love the way it helps people. I love the miracles that come out of my office every day. And the thing that, and I'm going to be blunt, the thing that pisses me off the most is when you have people that have already gone to doctors who are supposed to be experts who have piecemealed these people and led them on and not put their right hat on and not done the homework and not studied enough, but they're calling themselves experts. It's no different than a medical doctor saying nutrition isn't important. They don't have the grounds or the background to say that, but they say it anyway. And 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 so anyway, I'm going to get off my horse now, but I just no, feel no. extremely I, strong I know. People need about to hear that this. element. People do I need to hear it. Yeah. They need to hear it. They need to hear it because everything you said is so incredibly true. And it would seem logical. But for, for patients who are desperate and they don't feel well and here's this person that spent you know, 12 years in school or whatever it is, they've got to know, right? No. What you're saying is no, they don't always know. I love that. The goal is to fire your patient. I, I, just, I, can't t- I told you to talk to me and you did. And and anyone that knows me well knows that that's a hard thing to do, right, Dana? Yes, it is. I heard you. I heard every single word. I heard it. Me too. And the ones that I missed, I'm going to go back and listen to. Because <laughs> there was a lot of there was a lot of information, and then I have to admit, I was I was having some internet issues, and so I was it was cutting out and things. So um, I'm definitely going to go back and listen to this again. This was fantastic. I want to, I want to ask just a couple questions. How many kids do you have? Three. I have three oh, sons. Three. Boys, girls? Three sons. three sons. All boys, yes. How old are they? 23, 21, what? and 14. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. You do not oh look gosh. old enough to have a 23-year-old. No. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, it's because I practice what I preach. Fundamentally, that's the <laughs> other, that is the other job of the doctor. Is to be an expert, you have to live the advice that you give or you can't stand on a solid foundation of being able to give it. Okay. That right there is one of the most amazing things I have heard on the show because I walk into a doctor's office and the doctors are not healthy. I'm just going to say it nicely. And and you can just tell by looking at them. And I'm thinking to myself, why on earth – is this person going to give me advice and get me better if they can't even do it for themselves? 
Well, so it's no different you. than a, than a, than somebody who's broke trying to give you money advice. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, you take advice from people who live it, but also are educated. Because anybody can read a book. We can all watch a right. podcast. We can all read a book. That doesn't make us an expert. Living the yeah. advice does, and it gives us an insider perspective. If I tell somebody to go do yoga, I already know what that's like because I do it. If I tell somebody to go do CrossFit, I know what that's like because I do it. If I need to sit down with my patient for a longer period of time and teach them how to do a proper squat and teach them how to do a proper sit-up or teach them how to exercise, I can do it because I do those things regularly. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, that's amazing. I didn't expect I was going to get that great of an answer, so wow. Okay, what form of service were you in? Did you say? Did I miss it? I was in, yeah, I was in the Air Force. Air Force. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Okay, and what did you have for breakfast? This morning, I, have, I am fasting, actually, right now. Um, oh, wow. I find that, that when I fast, intermittent fasting is a, is a great tool. Um, I find that when I fast... Before presentation, I don't have to digest food, and my brain gets all the blood, and so I can I can think faster and more sharply for for interviews and for people who need to get my information. Well, okay. Well, what's now, on the menu for later then? What's on the menu for later? So I have <laughs> I have a, a couple of scrambled eggs that I'm going to have with uh, a cabbage salad, and that's purple and green cabbage. I've got, in addition to that, I've got some uh, spinach on top of that with some pecans sprinkled in. Um, so that's that's uh, that's going to be my kind of late afternoon snack here. Oh, and, my gosh. Uh, I, guess your, kid, I guess your kids and, and wife and, and family, I guess they're all pretty healthy, huh? They are, yeah. My um, my kids are all real healthy. My, my wife, we CrossFit together. You know, I, I owe a lot of it to her because she's such a wonderful woman. She, you know, she's embraced a lot of the ideology changes that I've kind of brought to the family, you know, through my education and through this whole process. And she's embraced it and she's mastered it. And she's been the homemaker that's been able to provide us with what we need as fuel and, and, and in a loving way. And I, that's important too. I think, you know, part of our culture is that food is love and and it very much is. And I think, I think if food being loved then we have to, you know, use love to prepare it, and we have to use good ingredients to prepare it, right? Food isn't love if we're destroying ourselves with food by, by giving somebody a gift of something that is unhelpful. Oh, oh here's a cupcake that. for you because I love you. That actually is the opposite of love, right? I know right. some people perceive it as such, but I, I look at it as, you know, when we look, I mean, we could have another lengthy conversation, but restaurants are a relatively new creation. And you go back as little as 40 years ago, and people laughed at the idea of restaurants. Today, people laugh at the idea of cooking, and and I just I'm very fortunate to have found a partner in life that has embraced not only that that fundamental idea that it's important, but has embraced the restrictions of food allergy and other things that you know that I bring home. Okay, well I'm inspired, Tiff. I am. I'm getting the book. I'm getting the uh, book. Well, get the I'm, book, and we're gonna get <laughs> I have, I have all a list this here. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Um, you know. Uh, Dr. Peter Osborne and I have been we played Facebook chat and back and forth for a while and I had been looking forward to to talking to you but I really had no idea it was going to be this amazing fantastic this is like one of my most favorite shows ever thank you yep. so very much for joining us today and staying over 
because we talked quite a long time. And oh my goodness, we, we just sure did. We appreciate you and your story and what you do and what you bring to this world and um, wish there was more of you out there. But yep. uh, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. And, and I would like to extend my thanks to you guys as well for for being brave enough to put this information out there because I know it comes at great cost and great ridicule and great scrutiny. So thank you for what you're doing as well. I know you're helping so many people. We hope so too. Thank you, thank so, you much. so much. Yes, we um, hope so. <laughs> go go hug that wife and and um and we'll chat later. We'll probably have you back on the show. This was wonderful. Have a fantastic day. Thank you. Thank you, you too. So much. Oh my gosh. Bye bye. Bye bye. I'm like in this perpetual flower field. I know I always say it. No, I'm gonna you let said you that one. Pick a different word. <laughs> you say Pick it a different this word. Time. That oh was gosh. amazing. You know, it was a, it's a, it's a, this is not a normal uh, length show. This is a long show, uh, but it's one of yeah. my favorites. I'm going to actually try to get my husband to listen to it. Um, he I was just kept amazing. Going. I could have kept going right? with him. I had so many questions still, you know, which I'm sure, you know, I'm going to go and peruse his blog, and, and I'm sure he talks about, you know, the carbohydrates and, you know, because everyone's saying you need at least a minimum of 120 carbohydrates, and he's got to cover that. I'm sure he does, and I'm going to get it. Oh, book. for sure. And, um, As a former I bodybuilder, absolutely. Fan, huh? What's that? Yes. As a former bodybuilder, I mean, you know, they, the ones that, that take it to the next level, they know a lot because they they see, they use their body as Seriously, an example. They do. You know, so right. uh, I think that's phenomenal. Wow, exciting. He was amazing. He was amazing. That is my favorite show. I can't, and I I am going to do it. Not gluten-free. Maybe that's been my problem. It's not a gluten thing. It's a grain thing. Grain. Grain thing. (laughs) Right? That's hard. Okay, no, that's easy. Because I'm not dying 26 years early. (laughs) If I was going to ask him, is it 26 per autoimmune condition? Oh, gosh. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Um, I think we've said it a couple times uh, so far. You can find um, the amazing Dr. Peter Osborne at peterosborne.com. That's P-E-T-E-R-O-S-B-O-R-N-E.com and also glutenfreesociety.com. Gluten-free and you've yeah, got to get into Twitter? it. No grain, yes, no yes, pain. Yes, no grain, no pain. No corn. A 30-day... Diet for eliminating chronic pain for life. And you and I both know yep. that. I go from zero pain yep. to 10 with sugar and certain types of uh, grain, not gluten. No more gluten right. word. No more gluten word. We're not talking. Grain. We're not talking that anymore. I know. <laughs> and I put it on his meme because it's a, it's a, it's a catchier. People are more used to seeing that. So um, I'm glad I, I still put that on the meme, the show meme. But um, it was really way more about health and, and grains. So, wow. And he explained everything, right? Resolve. Right. That creates resolve. Clarity. Yes. Yep. Clarity. Uh, That's my okay. favorite show, honey, right there. Me too. As always, a very big thank you to our listeners. We wouldn't do this if it wasn't for you. After today, you should feel empowered and you should pick up the phone or get online and check out Dr. Peter Osborne and what he has to offer. Uh, or if he's too far away or you can't do it, be sure to get your vitamins and minerals checked, however possible that is for you, because that is so very, very, very important. I'm just going to stop there. 
Mm, I'm I'm in a flower field, honestly. I am just okay. So be sure to check out Thyroid Nation Essentials at thyroidnation.com. Just healthy, grain-free, gluten-free, synthetic-free. Just healthy. It's healthy for thyroid patients. It's healthy for everybody. Just a, a better way it's, of it's handling your skin. And this would be a product stuff. that. Dr. Peter Osborne's wife would like. There is nothing in it that he would disagree with, and I can say that wholeheartedly. So uh, <laughs> that's that's nice to know. Make sure to follow Thyroid Nation on all social media. Um, of course, iTunes. You can listen to all the shows. We also have an archives page, but uh, I don't I haven't really been talking about that lately, have I? But we do have an archives page. So anyway, uh, also we have an, uh, we have a Hoshies and Graves uh, support group. Check that out. What else, Tiff? Twitter, Instagram, you are everywhere. Thyroid Nation is everywhere. Yay! <laughs> I love that. And, of course, yeah. Dana and I always want to remind you that wellness is a journey and takes continual maintenance and evaluation. So please be mindful of your body and what it is telling you and also get that genetic testing done. Like, like Dr. Osborne said, that is the beginning so sixty dollars off. Important. That's the most he's ever done. Go to Gluten Free Society, and yep, check the uh, genetic testing, and he'll put a special code in there for us, which is wow. Cannot what wait. What a gift! We forgot to thank oh. him. So if he's listening, Dr. Osborne, thank you so much thank again you. for offering that discount. That's just amazing, amazing, amazing. This is this is Dana, your thyroid nation green Gatica from Costa Rica, living in Colorado Springs. <laughs> and Tiffany Maladnich of Grateful Gardens. Bring the collective voice of thyroid thrivers worldwide so that together, united we heal. Thanks, guys. Favorite show. Favorite show. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.